This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Paul Tudor Jones, the influential hedge funder and philanthropist on what Wall Street is watching for in the fight against coronavirus. So much of this is path dependent on what happens with our response to COVID. Can we find a way with or without a vaccine to get people uh, engaged again. A new antigen test is approved to offer faster results of asymptomatic COVID carriers. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA. This is very contagious. If they were setting up a screening process in the White House, they should use a very sensitive machine for screening people who are going to be meeting with the president. And PayPal CEO Dan Schulman on how the coronavirus is shifting consumer behavior. You're seeing digital payments uh, in this crisis move from being a nice-to-have capability to a must-have essential service. Those stories plus Elon versus California and the reopening of Disneyland in Shanghai. It's Monday, May 11th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today on this Monday podcast, new tests in the coronavirus toolkit. The FDA granting emergency use authorization over the weekend to a company called Quiddle for the first antigen test for COVID-19. The new test is believed to be generally faster, cheaper, and easier to manufacture than most current diagnostics because it relies on decades-old technology that probably already exists in your doctor's office. Every step forward matters. The number of COVID-19 cases worldwide has crossed 4 million, with 1.3 million in the United States. Here's Andrew. In his latest Wall Street Journal op-ed, former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb says antibody testing could be the key to stopping the spread of the coronavirus if we make sure the tests are reliable. Dr. Gottlieb joins us now. He's also, of course, a CBC contributor, serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. And it's great to see you, doctor. Um, Just walk us through the importance of this, how it works uh, and how it could be a game changer. Well, this test um, tests for antigens that the uh, virus produces in the blood. So it has antibodies effectively on a stick, and you swab someone with that stick. That's, those antibodies bind to antigens that are produced by the virus. These are particles on the c- surface of the virus's coat. And then you put it in a little machine called a Sophia that's about $1,000 and has an installed base right now of about 40,000 machines in doctor's offices because doctors use these machines to test for flu and strep throat. And then it changes color, and you can get a readable result right there in the doctor's office. It takes about five minutes. The test itself probably is going to cost about $5. Now, the problem with it is it's only about 85% sensitive. So that means if you have 100 patients with COVID come into your office, you're only going to catch 85 of them with this test. The other 15, you're going to have to send off a PCR-based test. You're hopefully, as a physician, going to have enough suspicion that when you get the negative result, you're going to say, well, maybe this is a false negative. Let me send a confirmatory test. But the virtue is for the first 85 patients, you've now effectively diagnosed them right away in the doctor's office in about five minutes, very inexpensively, without having to reflex, without having to send off a PCR-based test. So this really does expand the ability to test in the doctor's office. And it's another tool. It's another layer of testing. Doctor, here's the question, though. If the accuracy level is only 85 percent, does that mean that any time you get a negative test, the doctor is going to want to do a second test? And, and if not, what are we doing? And, and can this test improve over time? 
There'll be other antigen tests that probably will be above 90%, but that's why these should be done in doctor's offices, and that's why the flu and the strep test are good tests when used in a doctor's office, because if you come in with strep symptoms or flu-like symptoms and you use one of these rapid tests and you get a negative test, the doctor's probably going to treat you anyway in the interim and send off a more accurate test like a PCR-based test and wait a day to get the result back. But for the vast, vast majority of patients who come in with symptoms and have the disease, these antigen-based tests can catch it. So it's a good first-line tool. It's not the kind of tool you want to use in the community to screen asymptomatic people, where if you get a negative result, you're unlikely to do anything. So this isn't the kind of test you'd want to use in a place of employment just to screen your employees, or even in a place like the White House, where they're screening people before they meet with the president who are asymptomatic. In those circumstances, you want a test that's far more foolproof, like the Cepheid gene expert or a PCR-based test. Speaking of that, uh, doctor, we're, we're, I was shaken uh, a little bit about uh, Vice President Pence and some of his people and the Secret Service agents, uh, and, and I think the FDA commissioner is, is, is um, you're the former, but the current one is, is quarantined too. I mean, it's got awfully close to the leaders of, of this country, including President Trump, who's, you know, I don't know if he has comorbidities, but he's... I, I know he's healthy, but he's at that in that age. It would be it's kind of frightening, is it not? Should we be concerned? Well, look, this is very contagious. I think what, if they were setting up a screening process in the White House, they should use a very sensitive machine for screening people who are going to be meeting with the president. They're using the Abbott machine right now, which is that machine that can turn around a result in five to ten minutes, up to fifteen minutes. It depends on how you run the test. That machine itself isn't 100% sensitive. I think when you're using a machine to screen asymptomatic people where if you get a negative result, you're likely to assume with a high degree of certainty that the patient doesn't have the virus. So when you're using it in that situation where you're screening people who don't have any symptoms and you're likely to say they're all clear if you get a negative result, you want a machine that's very sensitive. This morning in China, Shanghai Disneyland reopened after the coronavirus pandemic shuttered the park three months ago. The way Disney reopens this park could give the rest of the world a glimpse of what life and leisure may look like post-COVID. Here's Becky Quick. Eunice Yoon joins us right now. And Eunice, you know, if, if you open it and they come, I guess that's one part of the story. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, people are coming. Um, of course, Disney is managing the coronavirus concerns by screening everyone's temperature. They're asking that visitors wear masks and also that they keep a safe distance from each other. Another sign life is getting back to normal in Shanghai, selfies in front of the Disneyland castle. After being shut for 15 weeks, Shanghai Disneyland today became the only Disney theme park open for business. But it's definitely not business as usual. The park is still under post-pandemic restrictions to keep people healthy. The man in charge to do that here is head of operations, Andrew Bolstein. We always have that space around everybody. They can feel comfortable. Every line has markers instructing people to keep at least three feet away from the next person at entrances and even while on rides like Pirates of the Caribbean. As our guests are loading in, you'll see we put an empty seat between each group and then also an empty row between each of the rows. At the park, visitors get constant reminders to keep a safe distance from each other. At the restaurants, entire tables are being blocked off. All the restaurants, the menus are staying the same, but some of the service styles may be different. So we're not doing buffets. Uh, We're going to have a buffet concept, but we actually will serve the food for you. Hand sanitizer is available at restaurants and stores. Mobile payments are encouraged to avoid passing of cash. Theaters will stay shut. Parades limited. No fireworks to discourage crowds. 
but you can still see your favorite characters. Just don't get that close. Mickey and the gang are social distancing just like everybody else. No shaking hands or hugging. That has to wait for safer times. So Disney is capping the daily capacity at 30%. So that's about 24,000 visitors a day. And you know, guys, what's interesting is that from just a general experience for the visitors here today, um, it's, it's less crowded. And if you could get over the idea that there is this pandemic going on, and so if you could kind of get over that fear, the experience is quite nice. I mean, a lot of people were talking about how it's not very crowded, uh, a lot of... Uh, um, excitement that you only have to wait in line, uh, that people were tell, say, saying, uh, for about five minutes to get onto our ride. So, uh, the, you know, there isn't that same level of, of kind of stress to get everything done um, that you might see at, at a park if you go to Disney. Hey, Eunice, I wondered how they were going to deal with the social distancing. And we have been telling people, the CDC has been telling people, and I think who has too, that you need to have six feet in between people. So how'd they come up with the three feet? Yeah, you know, the company uh, said that uh, that there are several different guidelines. And in China right now, it's actually been one meter or three feet. So uh, they were going with uh, the, the three feet or one meter uh, guideline. But, uh, you know, it, it's different. It, I think that what's happening here is that Disney is is figuring out what works in different parks. Social distancing here, will it work elsewhere? You know, I actually specifically asked about the health code because there's a government-mandated health code in China that uh, that uh, the Shanghai Park asks um, all the visitors to, to show them. Um, that's not something that potentially would work, say, in the United States, where you probably won't have a government-mandated health code. So there's still a lot of learnings going on, but um, from the, um, what the company tells me, they are uh, sharing a lot of these, uh, these these discussions with people within the industry. Yeah, I, I guess part of it is if, if you were still forced to keep six feet apart in the parks, that would mean that you would have to have two lanes in between or two aisles in between everything mm-hmm. on the rides, which means you'd get a lot fewer people going through. And I wonder if that's a point that would make it unprofitable for, for companies to operate here in the United States, too. Yeah, no, I, I was actually asking a bit about the financials, but, um, you know, the people that I were talking to are on the operations side. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that n- nobody really had much to say about that. Um, most of the executives are actually outside of China, and because of the way the restrictions are for travel, none of them were here for this reopening. Right, right. Uh, Eunice, thank you very much. Let me tell you, though, about what took place over the weekend, because it, it became a massive, massive debate. On Saturday, Elon Musk said the company was preparing to file a lawsuit, this against Alameda County, California, over pandemic-related restrictions. Here's what he tweeted. He said, quote, frankly, this is the final straw. Tesla will now move its HQ and future programs to Texas, Nevada, where immediately, if we even retain the Fremont manufacturing activity at all, it will be dependent on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in CA, in California. Later on Saturday, then Tesla followed through, filing a lawsuit against the county over contradictions with state policy. And guys, this is going to be a huge debate for places like California, not just about Elon Musk, by the way, to me, and this Tesla issue, but there's there's larger debates springing up all over the country when it comes to how businesses and states and municipalities are dealing with these things. You're, we're watching it happen with Costco. Costco is putting a nationwide plan to force everybody to wear masks, even in, in municipalities where the masks aren't required. And so they're butting up against these state and municipal issues. So what a corporation wants and what a state wants during the pandemic is becoming quite complicated. 
Yeah, this isn't the end uh, uh, of, of this of this story, uh, Andrew. Steve. I thought you 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 uh, tweeted Elon Musk. What happened there? Did he ever you appealed to him for an answer and he just blew you off? He didn't. I think. He didn't. He didn't respond. You know what happened was I was having a conversation with a friend over the weekend about how actually things that I had been surprised by and mistaken by over these past you know month or God, two. God, that must have taken a and while. And I had noticed a tweet. Thanks. And I noticed a tweet of something that Elon had said about how he was much more optimistic, as you know, uh, about what was going to happen with COVID. Also, clearly a mistake given where things were. And so yeah. I just tweeted him and said, you know, as he's a very smart guy. And I w- you always want to understand how smart people think about things and where, where they get surprised and what yeah. happened. So I, I shot him a note. Uh, unfortunately, he has yet to reply. But, yeah. uh, you know, hope springs eternal. He's so smart, he's off the charts. You need to you need to have had three years of calculus to say his kid's name, I think. Did you see that? Uh, I saw him. I, did I you did. see the I podcast the, where he was explaining how to Rogan. say it? Yes. Do we yeah. know? Although I saw somebody else yeah. say that they thought that it was Kyle, you know, the symbol for Kai. Okay. Yeah. Then, okay. Do we know how to say it? it plays out, but they, well, he didn't sound like he exactly knew how to say it. It, you know what it I reminded she, uh, she uh, it, it was an X and then it's an A E which she said was for Ash and then uh, what's the airplane that he likes? He said that's, Ash, that's but the she last said part of it. She said Isle. She said it was I. He said it's Ash. So uh, if you ask the two parents, they pronounce in it in the old days when we used to you know cut sound bites and stuff. Do you remember in Splash when Tom Hanks asked uh, Daryl Hannah what her name was, her her actual mermaid name? Oh yeah, and she had to right. I think it's kind of like that. Uh, isn't it? I mean, you need to be... You I'm need... sticking with Kyle. I like that. Kyle's good. Well, he, he knew about your Kyle. Um, maybe. Uh, anyway, yes. how was Mother's Day? Good, Andrew? You do, you, you, did it was you... great. Yeah. I had a funny story. <laughs> I, I can't Day, repeat version. <laughs> I really can't repeat it. I can't repeat the story. But, but uh, I, 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 all I'll tell you is we had a fire in the oven on Saturday. Okay. So oh, no. we had to clean the oven. So we had to put all the baking soda on and it was ready to be cleaned on Sunday, and she wouldn't let me do it. So Mother's Day, she was oh, fully wow. in the oven with gloves on, and I, and I was drinking coffee. I stayed and watched the entire <laughs> thing. I did. I never <laughs> left, but she wouldn't let I might let not me. trust you either. Well, that's, yeah. but that's, she said that. She goes, you do, you do a half-assed job, and it, it would still be true. But on Mother's <laughs> Day, I mean, it killed me. Just, it's like. If, and, and I'll never live it down, I don't think. Anyway, a new week. Um, At least you feel bad. That's good. I do. I feel, I feel bad, and then I try to do a lot of other things. Coming up, hedge fund manager and Robinhood founder Paul Tudor Jones, flattening the curve and evening the playing field in a New York City stunned by coronavirus. I want to be able to say in 20 years to my grandchildren, when they ask me what did I do in the second depression, I want to look them in the eye and I want to tell them I did more than I ever thought I could do. Squawk Pot will be right back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our next interview is with hedge fund titan Paul Tudor Jones. He's the chairman and chief investment officer of Tudor Investment Corporation. He's the chairman of Just Capital and the founder of the nonprofit Robinhood, which serves New York City's homeless population. Almost five months ago, back in January at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Jones was the first market commentator to tell Squawk Box 
he was worried about a novel coronavirus emerging in China. There's no antidote. There's no vaccination. Can't do it. There's no cure. We don't even know what the incubation period is. Right. And you're obviously getting ready to go to the biggest travel period in China. So are you seeing through this? I'm a trader, not an investor. Correct. So if I was an investor, I'd, I'd be really nervous. It wasn't until months later, after the WHO declared a national pandemic and communities around the world were shut down to stem the virus's spread, that we heard from Jones again, this time a little more glass half full. We've got to be careful not to mythologize this into the pandemic Godzilla, because we can beat this thing. America can beat this thing. Humanity can beat this thing. As American people, we're fastidious and we'll do As a human race, we're going to do this. We're going to kick this bug's ass. When he said that back in March, his comments may have buoyed American investor spirits. But the global death tolls continued to rise. Cities shut down, revenues shrunk, businesses closed, and for many, paychecks disappeared. This morning, the world watched while states like Florida, Georgia, Ohio, and Colorado continued to gradually reopen their economies. And we checked in again with Paul Tudor Jones. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. You told us in late January, back in Davos, uh, to be worried about this pandemic. And then we talked to you again about six weeks ago in late March, and you had a much more optimistic point of view, both about what was going to happen in terms of the health issue and also in terms of what was going to happen to the markets. Uh, You've been right about the markets. Uh, On the health issue, you had suggested back then that you thought only 40,000 people, there'd be 40,000 deaths in America. And I wanted to understand your analysis as you look back on it now and uh, what you're thinking about looking forward. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Well, when I said that on your show last time, that was probably, at the time, I think that was uh, on the, the less optimistic scale of what people were forecasting. And it, it, also, it was difficult at the time to even, if you'll remember, it was difficult to even comprehend 10,000 deaths. Now we're obviously at 70 plus and counting. You know, the American people are a unique breed when you think about it. We have an amendment that says we have the right to bear arms. That's an incredible mindset when you think about it as a people so that we will never be under the yoke of a tyrannical government. We have states whose motto is live free or die. So I think America's greatest strength is its its individualism, its love of freedom. In the case of this pandemic, it's also our greatest weakness because it's the, the, if you look at the Asian countries that are succeeding in beating this, they're doing it because they place a much greater emphasis on societal values than they do on individual rights. So it's very difficult to get Americans to act as one unit, to come together and to do what's necessary to actually, again, reduce the number of COVID cases. And again, I think it just goes back to the core of who we are as a people. And I don't necessarily see that changing going forward. So we're probably, we're clearly the hardest hit of any country in the world. Uh, and as far as the eye can see right now, certainly with the kind of mentality that we've got and the leadership that we've got, uh, and I think just the core basic principles of who we are, I don't know if that's going to change. And so how does that impact your thinking about the world of investing? Does the stock market look fairly valued to you, cheap to you, overvalued to you? Well, I think, that the again, the last time I was here, I thought the market would be higher at this point in time. Primarily, it's higher 
because we're in a liquidity-driven state. I think this part, the bounce, was easy to forecast. I think what happens from here, again, depends a lot on COVID. So there'll be a shift in focus from liquidity issues somewhere down the line to solvency issues. And if we start seeing, if this if we don't find a vaccine or a cure, if we don't find a, uh, a much better way of testing at scale for the population so that we can get back to work and we start uh, seeing daily doses of bankruptcies and other insolvencies, then I think the market's going to have a, a much more difficult time. So, so much of this is path dependent on what happens with our response to COVID. Can we find a way with or without a vaccine to get people uh, engaged again. There's, again, there's that dynamic tension between the health costs and then the economic costs. But I wouldn't say just the economic costs. They're probably, the one thing I get nervous about with regard to the self-quarantining, and I've been doing it now like all of us have for the past two months. If you just think about the track of human history, right? Uh, Every year or every decade that's gone by, we've, As we've added more humans to the planet, by definition, we've probably become more urbanized. We've crowded together. It's because we're social animals. And but uh, with that has also been an attendant drop in the number of wars we have, our violence towards each other. Uh, Even our poverty rates are probably the lowest in in the history of the world or war or were before COVID. So uh, we are, by definition, social animals and uh, our sympathy and empathy and compassion and kindness. The more that we're together, I think the more of those values become embedded in who we are. And it's been a good thing. The, the, the social cost of quarantining, of self-quarantining, which I don't know, but uh, it's, a, it's a legitimate question is, is if we look back and we're doing this for another year of the world is, do we begin to chip away at the very traits, again, of, uh, uh, of kindness Uh, and brotherhood and sisterhood? Do we begin to chip away at those because we're all isolated? I don't know the answer to it, but it's something that stays in the back of my mind, particularly as as, uh, we go through our weekly Robin Hood meetings and we're thinking about programmatically the people are in need. Right now, we've had this great rush to help, uh, and I just hope it continues. I hope that we continue with the same sympathetic responses uh, that we're seeing right now. Paul, but doesn't that suggest to you, I mean, if you're talking about the American will, the will of the people to be social, and we're starting to see it across the country, irrespective of, 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 in certain cases, what the municipalities are saying or even what health experts are saying, perversely perhaps even, isn't that suggestive and promising for the economy? I think it is promising for the economy. And again, I don't pretend to know what the right balance is, and I don't pretend to know the right answer. Uh, there, there, there's the, the costs are so huge on either side of the scale. The COVID costs in terms of deaths is tragic and horrible. But then again, we've got the economic costs and the unknown and unquantifiable social costs of self-isolation. So I don't know what the right answer is. I think the market's going to figure this out. We're obviously uh, doing that right now. Certainly our cost has been much higher than a variety of other countries who have a more stringent lock, lockdown. Um, and I don't know necessarily what's the right way that we should be doing it. I, I, certainly in China, South Korea, et cetera, we can't even compare their situation to our situation because they have such fewer deaths, et cetera. But 
the way they got there is they have a phone with an ID number and you're tracked. You're tracked every single day. Uh, as right. a society, are we willing to do that? I, I, again, I don't know the answer. I, I, I think I know what the, I don't know what the right answer is. I think I know what the answer is. I think right. uh, Americans are too different. I don't know if we'll be able to come together and do that. Hey, Paul, before we let you go, uh, tonight's a big evening. Uh, I've been attending for many, many years uh, the Robin Hood Foundation's gala event in person. It's uh, taking place at Javits for many, many years. This time it's being done virtually. Uh, it's going to be broadcast on CNBC along with a host of other networks um, in New York City. Just tell how, how hard was it to get this one together? Well, this is unlike anything uh, that I've ever been involved with because I've, I've never been um, involved in producing a TV show. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a spectacular night. It's going to be an hour of uh, great messaging and great entertainment and diversion for the millions of people that have just had enough of COVID. So uh, we've got we've got Robert De Niro kicking it off. We've got an iconic, maybe the most iconic New York uh, entertainer closing the show. We've got Acts such as Lynn Manuel Miranda is going to have uh, nine, eight other Tony Award winners uh, doing uh, a great rendition, and we've got some great film clips of New York of New York's greatest sports comes back come come back because that's really what we've got to do here. We've got to come back uh, as a nation and in particular in New York uh, from COVID. One out of every four deaths in this country happened in New York City, uh, and so New York City deserve some special help and some special attention. And I'm so thankful to CNBC for broadcasting this nationally and internationally, because uh, I think we've got some important messages to deliver there. When I think about what's happening right now, um, we're really probably, depending upon how long this lasts, if, it's, if we're a year from now, we're still in the same situation, we will be and what will be called the Second Depression. Just depends on whether, unfortunately, this goes to a year with this kind of a lockdown, another year with this kind of a lockdown. So 1.2 million New Yorkers have lost their jobs the last two and a half months. And I, I, I say to my, I think to myself, I wonder how many of that 1.2 million somewhere in my nearly five decades in this city either opened a door for me or served me a meal or maybe they were a tour guide, or maybe they were a taxi cab driver. Who knows what they do? But I wonder how many of those 1.2 million that I intersected with. And then I think, okay, they served me and gave me some of the greatest memories of my entire life, as well as uh, are responsible for the success I've had. So here uh, tonight in our telethon, and Supporting any charity, really anywhere. I'm thinking New York because this is the epicenter. I'm thinking, okay, this is my chance to serve them. This uh, this is my chance to be of service to them, uh, to try to equalize the ledger. And I want to be able to say in 20 years to my grandchildren that uh, when they ask me what did I do in the Second Depression, I want to look them in the eye, and I want to tell them I did more than I ever thought I could do. I think that's the measure. 
Well, Tudor Jones, uh, we appreciate you being with us. We are rooting for you. We are rooting for Robin Hood, and we're rooting for New York and the rest of the country. And uh, we appreciate seeing you. And good luck this evening. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, we'll be broadcasting this evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Paul Tudor Jones. Next on Squawk Pod, PayPal CEO Dan Schulman. I think we're at a tipping point in e-commerce. I think we've accelerated where we were going to be maybe three to five years and in months have jumped ahead. And I don't think there's any turning back from that. We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. PayPal stock trading at all-time highs amid this pandemic. The company says it added more than 7 million net new customers just in April. Profit dropped sharply in the first quarter, but PayPal says that it expects a very big recovery in payment volumes in Q2. And joining us right now is PayPal's president and CEO, Dan Schulman. Dan, it's great to see you. Um, It's hard to say congratulations on a great quarter during what has been such a, a, a difficult time for so many, but yours is one of the companies. Uh, that has not only managed the challenge, but has is, is become a beneficiary uh, of all of this. I think the big question on the minds of investors and, frankly, those just trying to understand what's, what's taking place in the world of e-commerce and transactions is how much of this do you think is specific to this particular moment, being shuttered inside, people using Venmo, using your service, and what happens in a, in a world where people hopefully go back to some semblance of normal? First of all, Andrew, um Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, Becky and Joe, uh, good to be with both of you as well. Um, As you mentioned, um, we did have a very strong April, maybe the strongest April that uh, or month that we've had since we've gone public. We had record number of customers come onto the platform, record engagement. We hit our all-time highest number of transactions in our history on May 1st, higher than Black Friday, higher than Cyber Monday of last year, and revenues jumped up to about 20% uh, in April. I think um, this is obviously um, happening because there is an acceleration across all of our lives from physical to digital. And I think um, you're seeing digital payments uh, in this crisis move from being a nice-to-have capability to a must-have essential service. And um, I think uh, your point is a really good one. Um, you know, all of us uh, hope that we can move through this crisis as rapidly as possible. But it is certainly going to change the way we live our lives going forward. We are all going to be very cognizant of uh, hygiene, of health issues, of social distancing, And so I think we're at a tipping point in e-commerce. I think we've accelerated where we were going to be maybe three to five years and in months have jumped ahead. And I don't think there's any turning back from that. Well, let me ask you about that in terms of that acceleration. When we do go back uh, to some semblance of normal, walking into a store, going to a restaurant, what have you, um, typically I still pull out my credit card. And in a world where nobody is going to want to touch touch the keypad uh, or touch that pen or sign the, sign the receipt. How do you imagine PayPal navigates that and, and what's the benefit? I imagine we're going to be using our phones in a much more significant way, even in the real life settings, if you will. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point. I completely agree with you. 
I think you're going to see digital payments um, in what we call omni uh, channels, which basically means you're going to see it in the real world in store uh, through contactless payments, as well as in line. You're going to see a lot more people ordering online and maybe picking up in store and uh, either flashing a QR code or uh, uh, tapping their phone. But, you know, there's a recent survey that just came out that said 60% of individuals don't want to handle cash uh, going forward. They don't want to touch a keypad of some sort. And so I think the the advent of digital payments um, in store is clearly coming. And you know, we are going to accelerate our efforts in store uh, as a result of this. I have a huge team working on that right now because I just think um, we are all going to see uh, the hastening of the demise of cash. There's still over $18 trillion uh, in cash transactions uh, that happened last year. And I think a lot of that is going to move towards digital. Becky? You shocked me one time when you told me the number of attacks, cyber attacks that you were dealing with every day, every hour, probably every minute. What's that number look like now? What are we talking about? You know, I think, uh, Becky, in uh, any crisis, um, you you see a number of different things that happen. You see companies, uh, you see governments, you see nonprofits, NGOs step up and do things um, that are um, maybe more magnanimous than than they've done before um, and really take uh, their degree of responsibility up. At the same time, you always see bad actors who try and take advantage of crises. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the great thing um, is that we've been preparing for this. Um, you know, transactions have gone up, but we're seeing our fraud and loss races, uh, rates actually go down. And that's because really we have more and more data and information than ever before. Very sophisticated algorithms that don't just prevent bad actors from coming in because um, people are stealing IDs. Um, You know, a consumer loses their uh, personal identification on average once every two seconds. Um, And so we have to be sophisticated enough that when somebody comes in with stolen credentials, that we stop them from moving money out. And that's the kind of uh, processing we have. We look at 30 to 100 different variables on every transaction in real time to be assured that it's actually you doing that transaction. And we're having very good success on that. The financial system in general is built uh, to assure that fraud uh, and bad actors um, um, you know, have a hard time uh, coming into the system. Um, but again, we have to keep on our game. We always have to stay ahead of this. And it is a constant battle to be sure that, um, uh, that good right. transactions can go through while you block bad transactions. Hey, Dan, real quick, um, we've talked about employees a lot over the years with you and ESG and good practices. You've said that you won't lay anybody off. I'm curious how you think about furloughs, um, when you think they're appropriate, when they're not. Uh, there are companies clearly in dire straits that uh, are you know, either headed towards bankruptcy, who, who clearly need to do it, and other companies uh, that may be pursuing it just to try to maintain the kind of profitability that they had pre-crisis. What's appropriate? 
Yeah, listen, Andrew, I, I don't want to speak for other uh, companies, but I do think this is a time where most of us, at least financially strong companies, need to step up for their employees. I'm a firm believer that if you put your employees first of all of your stakeholders, they really rise up to the occasion. They serve customers better than before, ever before. And if you serve your customers well, then obviously you serve your shareholders well. And so I think anything we can do, and we made that commitment not to lay off any employees as a right. direct result of the right. COVID-19 pandemic, is the right thing to do. Dan, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you for all you're doing. And uh, we look forward and hope to see you very soon. And also, thank you for uh, playing and being a big part of the PPP program uh, and one of the first non-banks to participate. Right, right. Talk to you very thank soon. You, that's the podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.